Hello, Beth Kuhn, and welcome to our study of the book of Acts of the Apostles, Ma'ase HaShlichim. I am super excited about this study. Uh, I know some of you are too, and I hope that we all really have a good time getting into this book and learning what we can. This is the first week of our study and will be an introduction. Okay, but before I get into that, it is 6.29 on Thursday, and in one minute, the church that we share this space with will be starting their VBS in the sanctuary, which is directly behind me. So at some point, you might see me jump or go, ah, if I hear the, the music that you may not hear. Uh, but there may be some rocking and rolling going on, or, or you might hear some kids running by the door uh, screaming and crying, whatever. But it's all good. That's just part and parcel with sharing a space with another congregation that has a life of its own. So we're just going to roll with it. Okay. All right. So with that out of the way, before we dive into Acts, uh, let's briefly remind ourselves that this is part two of the Luke-Acts work. The Gospel of Luke tells of the origins, birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua, and Acts follows right on its heels with the continuation of Yeshua's work through the witnesses of his resurrection and his disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The real story of the book of Acts is about how the gospel goes forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What began as a small provincial temple sect exploded into a worldwide religious phenomenon within three decades. The book of Acts tells the story of that explosion. Luke demonstrates God's hand in the expansion of the gospel to the non-Jewish world. He reports the ever-widening circles which received the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and which represents the three types of people introduced to the gospel. For Luke and his readers, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit proved each group's full participation in the new covenant of the kingdom era. Now, as we move through the text, I'll be defining terminology we come across so that we're all on the same page about what is being communicated, what was intended. To start with, two of the terms we'll see throughout are apostles and congregation or church or assembly, depending on your translation. So the first word... Apostles, which comes from the Greek apostolos, with the Hebrew equivalent shlichim. These words mean sent ones. In the Greek and Hebrew, this term can refer to any messenger sent out on a mission as an agent of the sender. The term doesn't necessarily imply a religious office or mission, but rather that the sent one has the legal credentials or authority to represent the sender with the power of attorney, so to speak. In the Brit Kadashah, the word takes on a more specific meaning. Here, the title refers specifically to an emissary of Yeshua and came with certain criteria, namely, having been a disciple who could transmit Yeshua's teaching and having been an eyewitness to the risen Messiah. While this book is entitled Acts of the Apostles, there are many more apostles whose acts are not included here, and we're only seeing a few. The second word is the word translated church or congregation or assembly, depending on your translation. That word comes from the Greek ekklesia, with the Hebrew equivalent kahal. These words simply mean a convened assembly of a people, of people. 
similar to the nature of the word shlichim or ekklesia in, in, uh, in Greek and shlichim in Hebrew. I'm sorry, my tongue is tied. The word we translate as church or congregation in the Brit Kadashah carries no religious connotation. It is simply a called together people as opposed to a called out people. You could have an ecclesia of Star Wars fans or a kahal of redheads. The term carries no implicit characteristic other than describing that a people has come together, period. Now, in the Brit Kadashah, again, this term also takes on a more specific meaning and that it implies that the assembly or congregation is made up of believers in Yeshua. So this term itself still doesn't take on a religious meaning. It is just assumed by the writer that the reader understands what people are assembled or convened. Does that make sense? Okay. I'd like to take a little time and go over how we may have been reading Acts and then how we may want to read it now. And I'd like to introduce to you what Rabbi Mark Kinzer lays out in his book, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, about the general assumptions we can hold when we read scripture, especially as they concern themselves with whether or not the Christian church has replaced the Jewish people as the true Israel. Supersessionism. I must clarify that all these assumptions are correct. The problem arises, I believe, when the set of assumptions we hold is incomplete. Okay, so in general, and this is in general, and these are Rabbi Kinzer's uh, assessments. Christianity's three assumptions are, one, the divine human identity of Jesus and his saving work. Two, the New and Old Testaments as authoritative, life-shaping scripture for the community of Jesus' disciples. And three, the biblical canon as supporting assumption Judaism's three assumptions, we could say, are thus. The irrevocable election of Israel, crystallized in the Torah. Two, Tanakh, or the Hebrew Scriptures, as authoritative, life-shaping Scripture for Israel. And three, Tanakh as supporting assumption number one, the irrevocable election of Israel. With those two in mind, we can conclude that the three messianic assumptions could be this. One, The divine election of Israel is irrevocable, and we, Messianic Jewish and Gentile disciples of Yeshua, are an essential part of that Israel. Two, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, with the Brit Kadashah, the Greek Scriptures, is authoritative Scripture which shapes our lives. And three, the Brit Kadashah as a whole teaches, assumes, or at least does not deny the irrevocable election of Israel. Okay. What the Christian assumptions leave out, and again, all of those are true. All of those assumptions are good assumptions. It's the set that, that uh, can lead to problems. What the Christian assumptions leave out is the irrevocable divine election of Israel. What the Jewish assumptions leave out is the divine human identity of Yeshua. The Messianic assumptions melds the two in a way. So how can we superimpose the Christian and Messianic assumptions onto the book of Acts to see how we might be reading the book differently? One way is through its geographical structure, right? Where on the map exactly everything plays out in the course of the book. To quote Rabbi Kinzer, a Christian uh, supersessionist view 
specifically of Scripture would be this, and I quote, The message of history entering a new phase with the coming of Jesus and the transfer of the covenant from the Jewish people to the church is implicit in the geographical structure of Acts. The book begins in Jerusalem, but then moves steadily outwards, concluding in Rome, the heart of the civilized world. The movement of Acts is seen as centrifugal, moving away from the center or out from the center, rather than centripetal, moving toward the center. This expresses in spatial terms the meaning of the gospel message. While that message begins with the Jewish people in the land of Israel, God intends to establish the new people of God as a gathering of Gentiles centered in the imperial capital. The author of Acts depicts in dramatic form the transfer of covenantal privilege from genealogical Israel to the church of the nations in the final scene of the book. Here, Paul addresses the leaders of the Jewish community in Rome and pronounces judgment upon them for their failure to believe the message he proclaims. The future belongs not to Israel, but to the church. End quote. Now, from our Messianic Jewish perspective, this cannot be true. As Robert Brawley states in his book, Luke, Acts, and the Jews, and I quote, Although Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome, it is inaccurate to conclude that Jerusalem falls out in favor of Rome. The narrative in Acts actually reciprocates between Jerusalem and the extended mission. Even when Paul is in Rome, his memory reverts to Jerusalem to reiterate his fate there. Hence, Acts does not delineate a movement away from Jerusalem, but a constant return to Jerusalem. In the geography of Acts, emphasis repeatedly falls on Jerusalem from beginning to end. End quote. Every time the story takes another step outward, it concludes that stage of the story by returning to Jerusalem until Paul's last recorded journey, of course. Look it up. See for yourself. Paul, on the road to Damascus, has an experience, returns to Jerusalem. Peter in Caesarea returns to Jerusalem. Barnabas and then Paul in Antioch and beyond return to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas again in Antioch and in Asia Minor minor, return to Jerusalem and so on. Because of the pattern that has been established, we know and can anticipate that there is a return to Jerusalem on the horizon. When we come to the end of Acts, we can understand that the story isn't over on many levels. Luke, I believe, wants his readers to see the geographical swaying back and forth in his narrative, going out from Jerusalem always to return again. Rome may be the end of the earth, but it is not the end of the story. The story will end where it began, in Jerusalem. As we'll see in the very first scene in Acts, the apostles are chiefly concerned with restoring the kingdom to Israel. In chapter 1, verse 6, they ask, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That is their last question to their rabbi and king before he is taken up. And Yeshua's response isn't an affirmative or a negative, but an instruction to them that that is not to be their focus right now. He says in verses 7 and 8, It is not your place to know the times or seasons which the Father has placed under his own control, 
but you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and through all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the question is not if the kingdom will be restored to Israel. It is when, now or later. It's going to happen. While we wait, we have some work to do. We are to be his witnesses. So why Acts now? Why study Acts now as a congregation? We're going through Acts, I believe, because we're going on a journey toward maturity. Now, of course, that's always true that we're on a journey toward maturity. Uh, As a congregation of mostly Gentiles with a past rooted in Christianity, we have spent a great deal of time reinforcing our foundation in Torah and the Hebrew Scriptures, and for good reason. Over the years, we've maintained a balance between the Tanakh and the Brit Kadashah. We've had our own swaying back and forth, a balancing. And since we've spent the last few years cycling through the Torah, it's now time to turn our attention to this important Greek text, especially now as we endeavor to move forward into maturity, as the, uh, uh, the Messianic community in the first century was doing. So let's take a look real quick at the text itself, uh, not the text itself, but the canon of Scripture. So the first century Messianic community was rooted in their understanding of Tanakh, Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, the writings, the prophets and writings. Then, of course, they had access to the gospel writings, the Acts, the epistles. But their starting point was Tanakh. For the 21st century Beth Tikkun Messianic community, we have our foundation rooted in, we had our foundation rooted in the New Testament. We then uh, focused our energy and attention on the Tanakh, the Torah, writings, and the prophets. And when we came back to the New Testament, we understood it now as the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant. And now we're moving on into Acts. Now we've done Acts before, back in 2010. It's a great study and I encourage you to go and listen to it. But we're coming back to it again in this part of our history um, because it's just the right time. And finally, we want to place ourselves in the shoes of those first century apostles. So, the Messiah had just left, we see in the beginning of Acts. Um, He's ascended up out of sight of his sent ones. The Master has left their physical presence and left them work to do after having poured into them as they walked beside him on this earth. Uh, In other words, the training wheels are off. In the Gospel of John, we read that Yeshua says to his disciples, It is better that I leave you. Yeshua wanted for the early Messianic community to be a healthy, growing community, and he knew that that wasn't going to happen if he stuck around. In other words, Yeshua wanted for his disciples to grow less dependent on his physical presence and lean more on each other, taking what he taught them and finishing the work in the world. So the Messiah left, and they were given the Holy Spirit. So how do his students take the wisdom, knowledge, and understanding they received during their time at his feet and turn it into what makes them and those they are sent out to witness to holy? Well, they will have the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and he is the perfect assistant in this effort. To explain simply, how did God create the universe? He spoke. He created through the word what was sent out from him on his breath. 
the Ruach. So like the first apostles, we are called to be God's speaking in the world. We have the word. We have come to a better uh, understanding of it, knowledge and wisdom. And we are now to take it out by the Spirit. Okay? All right. We'll leave it there for this week. Next week we'll be studying the Ascension in Acts chapter 1. So read up on that chapter in the meantime. Until next week, may God bless you and may he make us into the people he wants us to be. Shalom.